Hello and welcome to Occupied Thoughts, a podcast brought to you by the Foundation for Middle East Peace. I'm Lara Friedman. I'm the president of the Foundation for Middle East Peace. Today is May 8th, 2023. And I'm very happy and honored to have back with me today the preeminent journalist and political analyst, Dalia Hatuka. Dalia is a multimedia journalist specializing in Israeli-Palestinian affairs and a regional Middle East issues and regional Middle East issues as they pertain to business and economics, culture, art, and U.S. foreign policy. Dalia also writes about religion, minorities, and immigration in the U.S. You can read her work in major outlets around the world, including the Washington Post, Foreign Policy, Foreign Affairs, NPR, BBC, the New York Review of Books, The Economist, Time, The Nation, The Intercept, Jewish Currents, The Guardian, and Al Jazeera, to name a few. We're very honored to have you with us, Dahlia. You can see her bio and a compendium of her work at www.daliahatuka.com. That's D-A-L-I-A-H-A-T-U-Q-A.com. And you can also follow her on Twitter. It's at Dahlia Hatuka. So Dahlia, thank you so much for joining me again today. Um, and for yeah, folks, sorry, interrupt you. For for folks who follow Occupied Thoughts, um, I spoke with Dahlia just uh, just under a year ago, um, after the killing of Shireen Abu Atle, and uh, and and that's what we're here to talk about again today. So Dahlia, th- thank you so much for joining me. Thank you, Laura. So this week is a a dreadful anniversary. May eleventh um, is the anniversary of the killing of Shireen Abu Atle. Um, who was killed, as people recall, doing her job as a journalist reporting from the West Bank. Um, I know Shireen was your close friend. I want to ask you, before we get into the politics and all the stuff around this, I want you to talk about Shireen, um, one of Palestine's greatest journalists, your friend, an amazing human being. So just just start us off by, by telling people things maybe that they, reading all the news that they don't know about this woman. Yeah, um, uh, thank you for having me on again. I I honestly can't believe it's been a year. Um, I still can't believe she's gone. Like it's something that's very hard to fathom and it's hard to accept her death, um, especially when justice has not been served. Um, I'm really, I I find myself like angry, uh, but not surprised that, you know, the Israelis have gotten away with her murder as they have with hundreds of other Palestinians. Um, even when there is you know, security footage, when there's eyewitnesses, it's just, it, it just doesn't matter, you know? And, but also I'm, I'm so disgusted and disappointed with the US administration. I know at the beginning when Shirin was killed, they, um, the administration had promised or made a lot of promises to her family and whatnot, but, um, Honestly, nothing's happened. It's been a year and it just feels like they've treated Shirin like she's, you know, a child of a lesser God or a second class citizen. And like one thing that's made me terribly sad was watching the White House correspondence dinner the other week. Um, I, I had attended this dinner many times and, you know, it's, it's kind of a big deal because the president usually attends. But at the event, and I do appreciate that Biden had made this promise, you know, he made a promise that he was working hard to bring back Austin and Evan, you know, two journalists um, that, um, that are missing or being kept um, 
away by various authorities in Syria and in Russia. And I was truly grateful that he was doing his best to bring them home because, I mean, they deserve it. You know, no journalist should be kept away. Uh, but it was both shocking and maybe not not very shocking that he made no mention of Shiri. And then um, I was just, I was just like in my mind, I was thinking, I mean, who, you know, who's talking to the president? Who has his ear? And who who tells him that it's okay to, you know, pick and choose what journalists uh, should uh, have the kind of justice that they deserve. Um, but maybe we'll talk about that a little more later. I, I think maybe I, I take solace in the fact that Shireen was so well-respected and loved. Um, this whole entire year, um, many people have, have talked about her. Many people have... Um, know her name and, uh, you know, they still call her a symbol of a generation of Palestinian women uh, who came of age in, in 97 when she first uh, joined the Al Jazeera. You know, she was the first female correspondent they'd seen on their telev uh, television screens. Um, yeah, you know, people are right. She was a trailblazer. We all followed in her footsteps. Um, uh, but she was, you know, Palestinian through and through, and that was the driving force behind her work and her passion and her will and drive to tell stories that nobody else wanted to tell. And, um, you know, she, she wasn't just devoted to covering, like, just the armed conflicts, like, and the daily injustices of the occupation. She, she did all that. She, she documented the invasions, the arrests, uh, the home dev demolitions, the shootings, um, but, you know, also at the same time, like I sometimes um, go through some of the stories that she did and she did some really beautiful ones. Like she, she did some stories about uh, Palestinian cross-stitch or tatris, you know, the, the traditional dresses um, that uh, Palestinian uh, women make by hand and, and wear. Um, she, she did several stories, like not just in Palestine, she went all over the place. Like I recall a, a picture of her in, I think in Yemen at some point, I know she's been to Egypt. She's, she was all over the place. She, she worked out of DC as well. And, um, it just saddens me. Like every time I, I hear her voice, you know, like, um, there's a, a now it's a famous video of her uh, speaking in Arabic and saying, you know, something along the lines of, I managed to overcome my fears in difficult times uh, because I've chosen journalism in order to be close to people. Uh, and not, it might not be easy to change the reality, but at least I am able to convey the people's message and voice. And that's what she did, you know, she didn't try to be the message and the voice. She just, she kind of used herself as a vessel. And I think that's what people loved about her the most. Thank, thank you for that. That was, that was beautiful. Um, I, I want to dig into some of the stuff that, that you also said. It's really struck me. You said children of a lesser God. I, I'm sometimes struck with the sense that there are inconvenient people in the world politically. And you can see that they're the way they're they're inconvenient for the politics, and I think that's something that that is clear when you see the degree of interest and focus um, that you that you get from the United States government, 
when some American citizens are killed and when others are killed, you don't get the same degree of focus and interest. Depending on who they're killed by, um, they may or may not be inconvenient. Um, so I, that, that comes in. I, I, I want to look at just going back to the, the way her, her death has been handled. Um, and, and, you know, we both recall, I know, in the immediate aftermath of her death, Israel did what it often does, and it turns to some very handy tactics of denial, um, deception, uh, gaslighting, deflection, and then, of course, the super fun one of blaming Palestinians for their own deaths. Um, and I will remind people of the Israeli government official who immediately after Shireen's death uh, described Palestinian journalists as being, quote, armed with cameras. Um, and, and yet, Shireen's killing um, has, uh, and, and the, I sort of say her killing and then the behavior of Israel around her, her funeral and those images which went around the world um, drew what, what felt at the time like an unprecedented level of attention and scrutiny, um, including what we saw, which were multiple investigations by major international news services, by human rights organizations, um, to the extent where it's possible today to point to it and say there's an overwhelming amount of, 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 of facts here that point to culpability and point to a need for accountability, which we have not yet seen. Can you talk about these investigations, this battle of the narratives over her death, um, and this question of what happened, who bears responsibility, and, and what this debate says about how the media treats um, or reports on Israel's treatment of Palestinians. And, and even if you're, I mean, for me, it's striking to me that the degree to which um, the media is, is, is unwilling or, 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 or is deeply uncomfortable reporting on what happens to Palestinians, even when it has this array of what in any other context would be an over, seen as an overwhelming um, fact base to report from. Can you talk about that a little bit? Sure. So I, I, the first thing I want to say is like, um, is basically that uh, what happened to Shirin is not an isolated incident. I think the the reason it blew up is because, you know, um, first of all, she was an American citizen, and second of all, uh, many many people raised the issue and um, um, and spoke about it to the extent where not just Israel, but also the U.S. couldn't ignore it. Um, but, you know, is this an isolated incident? No, it's not. It's part of a pattern of Israeli attacks against journalists, especially Palestinian journalists and, uh, you know, other civilians, obviously. Um, I, I think I've lost track of the number of times that journalists, you know, have been tear gassed or shot at with uh, rubber-coated steel bullets or live ammunition or whatnot. It's almost like it doesn't matter anymore because even even when you are killed, um, you don't get justice. So will you get justice for being shot at? I, I don't think so. But to go back to the investigations, um, as you mentioned, you know there were several investigations. They were all by renowned uh, rights groups or media outlets, and they all ruled that Shirin's killing was deliberate. Um, even Israel itself said Shirin was probably killed by one of its own soldiers. But of course, um, they made it a point to cast doubt on the perpetrator and um, to cast doubt on the fact that the act was deliberate. 
And, and this is what Israeli authorities do. They muddy the waters and they did that from the get-go when they first claimed that Shirin was killed by Palestinian gu- gunmen. Till this day, they never retracted that claim, you know? Even if you go back like through tweets and whatnot, the, the, the tweets are still there uh, saying that, you know, uh, where they had that, that um, infamous video of like some random Palestinian uh, fighters, uh, I don't know where. Um, Israeli investigations, you know, they're routinely announced, they're rarely conducted, they're never transparent or impartial, and they've been dismissed by human rights organizations the world over as exercises, basically, to protect the impunity of perpetrators and to thwart accountability. Now, all these investigations have, however, also beg the question, Why can't Palestinian eyewitnesses who were present at the scene be taken at their word? If it was anybody else, we would have been like, oh, but there were eyewitnesses who saw, you know, what had happened. Um, But, you know, why should they only be believed when high profile media outlets say what Palestinians have been saying from the get go? And the lengths that the media feel it is necessary to go to in order to publicly reject or challenge Israel's narrative is extraordinary, mainly because it shows that even the media doesn't take Palestinians at their word. And because the Israeli narrative is so predominant and taken as fact. So it's very hard for Palestinians, especially journalists, to be able to to be taken seriously because whatever we say, we have to back it up a thousand times over. So even when you look into the Associated Press and the New York Times investigations, for example, um, while they were very important, you know, the, the, the conclusions they came up with, you see a lot of jargon and you see a lot of use of the passive voice as if to say this bullet somehow found its way to Shireen's head and not because an Israeli soldier deliberately shot that bullet and killed her. It's as if they are unsure of themselves or um, if they're they're unsure themselves of what their own experts have found. And honestly, it's very disheartening because it makes you feel like your word counts for nothing. Yeah, I I find myself thinking as you're saying this about, I mean, we all we all know this for years. The, the the Palestinians are not allowed to narrate or witness their own history. And then until, for instance, going back to 1948 and things like some of the massacres that took place, the Palestinians have been reporting on for years. I mean, we're coming up on Nakba Day until information comes out of Israeli archives and an Israeli filmmaker makes a movie where the people speaking about what happened are the Israelis who did it. It's not, it, it's still framed as anti-Semitic, you know, conspiracy theory that no one shall speak of um, because Palestinians speaking about what happened to them directly um, cannot be heard. Um, it, it, I will say it's, it's striking in 2023 seeing, you know, I'm thinking about the Tantura, the, the, the movie that came out, I don't know, a year and a half ago, whatever it was. You have to wonder at what point there is a tipping point in the public consciousness, which says every time then the data comes out from the Israeli archives or the Israeli witnesses and they validate exactly what Palestinians said. At what point are you going to start believing and listening to Palestinians experiencing it? Right. You know, when do you start believing people when they tell you this is what happened to them? Um, But it's it's particularly clear in a case like Shadeen, where you did have journalists on the spot 
um, Palestinians on the spot um, who couldn't be, could, who have been unable to be effectively believed. Um, something you you talked about earlier, I want to talk about this question of justice. Um, so obviously the quest for justice, for accountability um, is still ongoing and that and, and it's unachieved a year on. Um, and can you talk about what this this ongoing quest means with respect to the quest for justice for Palestinians in general? Um, and also what it means for for journalists um, operating this space. And you already mentioned, you know, pal journalists, we we it's almost barely worth mentioning now. It, it it comes as like a footnote in an article that like, oh, and journalists were reportedly shot at at this at this demonstration. Normally journalists being shot at would not be a footnote. Um, can you talk about that more? And also focusing specifically on the US. And and as a reminder, Shireen was an American citizen, which is one of the reasons this actually has gotten the degree of focus it has, not just that she's high profile and well-respected, but she's an American citizen. Um, although arguably, as I said, an inconvenient American citizen in this case, as compared to an American citizen who's killed by, say, a Hamas bomb, and then that becomes a reason for shifting all U.S. policy and cutting off aid. Um, can you talk about those with the American context, the contrasting roles of Congress and, and some specific champions in Congress who have been working on this? Um, the Biden administration, which you mentioned earlier, has has given lip service to to concerns for justice, um, and then also U.S. activists who've who've kept this issue alive in the United States. So, um, you know, since May 11th of last year, I've been pondering like what the U.S. administration administration can and has done so far to deliver justice to her to Shireen's family. And to me, I mean, I don't know what their sense of justice is, but to me, this justice is basically, um, first of all, acknowledging uh, that this was a heinous crime, bringing the the soldier who actually killed her to, you know, to court or, um, you know, at least telling us who, who that person is, because in my mind, I, you know, it just bothers me that I don't know who this person is. You know, it's like, it's almost like it didn't happen because there's no acknowledgement that this ghost of a soldier exists. Um, and, and this makes me see utter failure on the part of the US administration to not only Shireen, but, and, but also to her family, to those of us who, you know, I have Palestinians who are also American citizens who are, you know, subject to any, we, we can be subject to death or injury or maiming by, by any Israeli soldier. And it leaves us to conclude that our lives don't matter as long as the killers are an ally. Like when, you know, a lot of people ask me, like, they're like, oh, you're um, a Palestinian American citizen. Uh, you must have more rights. But quite frankly, I don't. When you call the U.S. embassy and you say you're at Ben-Gurion and you're stuck, they're like, okay, you're on your own. There's not much going on. You know, there's, there's not much they can do or there's not much they want to do. And it's so sad because you feel like, like the U.S. is kind of... Um, is kind of beholden to Israel for some bizarre reason. And... And this also makes me think about like, 
other Palestinians who have been killed. Like we, you know, a lot of people might not remember there was a 78 year old Palestinian American man who died in January. His name was Umar Asad. It was the January of 2022. And he died, you know, when soldiers stopped his car, they blindfolded him, they bound him. They led him away to a building under construction and he was found dead like the next day with a plastic zip tie still around one of his wrists and his family never got justice. Um, I think the only thing that happened was the Israeli military responded by demoting two officers and berating their commander. And this makes me think like, okay, justice and accountability. So we want something that the U.S. gave to the families of, say, you know, uh, Daniel Pearl and Marie Colvin. Like the family of Marie Colvin, uh, the American journalist for London Sunday Times, she was killed in 2012 in a rocket attack. Um, her family sued the Syrian government in a U.S. civil court. Their claim, which was filed under the Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act, if I'm not m mistaken, um, was, you know, um, a war crimes related case against Bashar al-Assad's regime. And I, I, if I remember correctly, the court ordered something along the lines of $300 million in damages. Yes, they're not going to get a penny out of the Syrian government. But, you know, the, the, the judge's clear ruling that Colvin had been deliberately targeted as a journalist was important. It was hailed by press freedom and human rights advocates. Um, I know that Shirin's case has been referred to the ICC, but a referral doesn't guarantee an investigation and nothing's happened in that sense so far. And we know that Israel and the US, neither of them are signatories to the ICC. So this makes enforcement in the event of a ruling unlikely. Um, but, you know, we still have the FBI team investigation um, that uh, more than 50 American lawmakers had called for. Uh, this was what, what had happened, I think, um, in 2002 in response to the kidnapping and killing of, you know, Daniel Pearl in Pakistan. So it's like, why, why are we picking and choosing? Why aren't we applying the same rules to all the journalists who have been killed or, you know, maimed or, you know, anything. And I, I think, yeah, as deep a commitment as the U.S. has to Israel's security, it has an even greater obligation to the safety and security of its own citizens. And the State Department said as much earlier last year when it called for a thorough criminal investigation in to the death of 78-year-old Palestinian-American Omar Assad. And I remember the US government said something along the lines that they have no higher priority than the safety and security of US citizens abroad. So where does this leave Shireen? Like why, why, is she not, um, why is she not being given the same accountability and the same treatment that others before her have been given. And I remember one time I was talking to Matt Duss, who at the time was Senator uh, Bernie Sanders' foreign policy advisor. And he told me the reason the Israelis act with impunity is because the United States has taught them that they can. Because ultimately, it's up to the United States to tell Israel where it stands on certain issues. Because, you know, you've got this 
you know, so much money, so much weaponry going from the U.S. to Israel. And and so at the end of the day, you know, um, it's kind of sad to hear that because it, it's a it's a, a grim conclusion for Palestinian American journalists like me who feel that they can't trust their own government to protect them. I've never once been in the field and thought, oh, yeah, my passport will be able to do anything for me. And that's especially true when I return from abroad to the West Bank via Jordan, because ultimately when I cross on the bridge, I'm a Palestinian first and foremost. Yeah, I I remember many years ago when an activist named Rachel Corey died in the Gaza Strip. She was bulldozed by an Israeli, an IDF bulldozer. Um, I remember thinking, well, this will be a game changer because she's not just an American. She's an American American. <laughs> Get the hyphens there. You know, this is a, a white blonde American from the Pacific Northwest. And it was um, it was something of a I don't want to say a shock, but it, it clearly wasn't true. It goes back to, you know, inconvenient deaths. And and it, it, that was not a death that in any way became a major factor in U.S. foreign policy. Um, I think a lot of us thought with Shadeen, given her high profile, um, that this also might be one of those cases that could be be the, the, the exception, even if it's the exception that proves the rule. And it, it hasn't proved to be that. Um, I, I want to... F- step back or, or pull the camera back on just the issue of journalism. And, and just as context, this is, this is my context. You know, living under Israeli military control and apartheid, Palestine has for years, I would argue, and many would argue, operated as something of a laboratory um, in which authoritarian policies of control and abuse are tested and perfected on a captive audience of Palestinians. And then um, in, we have the case of weapons and weapon systems that Israel develops and then and exports. Um, and, and we have what people are coming to realize is an industry of surveillance tech, um, which is developed and tested and perfected on Palestinians and is, it violates basic rights of privacy and, and safety. Um, and that today are threatening those same basic rights of people around the globe because those same things are being exported. I want to ask you what journalists and media outlets operating in conflict in conflict affected areas where you have much like we have in Palestine a, an illiberal authority with overarching power um, what what they need to learn or what they can learn from the killing of Shirin and the Israeli government's um, I would use the term management of the aftermath in order to ensure its own impunity. I think the 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 first thing that I can think of uh, when thinking about like the the killing of Shirin and how it's affected journalists is the chilling effect that's it's had on on journalists uh, on the ground because now journalists are are much more afraid of going into the field. Like for example, um, uh, the last time when something was happening in Hawara uh, near Nablus. Uh, there were a bunch of journalists and, uh, you know, we were all debating whether to go, you know, to, Na- uh, to Hawara and to cover the, um, the pogrom there uh, by Israeli settlers. And we decided that some of us would go, some of us wouldn't. And those of us who would go need to go together. And honestly, I don't remember the last time, maybe the last time was in 2002 during the Israeli invasion of the West Bank. Uh, that we, you know, we kind of like came together and said, okay, it's not safe for us, 
for one of us to go alone. And so there is this chilling effect. I personally didn't go. I didn't feel like I was up for it. Like I'll, I'll be honest. And I, I just, I couldn't get myself to do it. Um, but also the killing of Shirin has, has kind of um, uh, cast a spotlight on, on the high rate of Israeli attacks against media workers and um, the relative impunity under which they operate. So um, um, I, I recall Omar Shakir, the Israel and Palestine director for Human Rights Watch, uh, said that the, the Israeli investigations that come afterwards, after things have happened, are whitewashed mechanisms. And um, I mean, that's the assessment that's been reached by many human rights organizations, including, for example, Israel's premium, um, premier uh, human rights organization, B'Tselem. Uh, like I said, Human Rights Watch has a similar diagnosis. The reality is there's no accountability for these sorts of abuses when it comes to actions by the Israeli authorities. So many of us know that Israeli military investigations into the deaths of Palestinians often drag on for months and sometimes years without even reaching firm conclusions or leading to prosecutions. Like uh, I was doing some research, for example, and I saw that Yeshtin, um, an Israeli human rights group, found that um, in 2019 and 2020, I think out of 270 complaints, four led to indictment of soldiers. And it's mind boggling, you know? And um, one case that's striking for its parallels to the killing of Shirin is, is held up as an example of why the distrust runs so deep. I, I'm talking here about the, the killing of um, these two journalists um, their names were Ahmed Abu Hussein and Yasser Murtaja. They were shot by Israeli snipers uh, in 2018 while they were covering the Great March of Return protests in Gaza. And, you know, like Shirin, Yasser Murtaja was wearing a vest. It said press. And like Sh with Shirin, the Israeli military promised to investigate the killing after an, an international outcry. But then they started accusing Murtaja of being a senior Hamas operative. And obviously they never provided evidence for the allegation. Um, Murtaja's company had been approved for a US government grant. I mean, obviously it's a process that includes extensive background vetting. So, you know, the, whatever the, the Israelis were coming up with wasn't true, uh, but it didn't matter because it sparked confusion. Uh, it, it, it sparked like all sorts of nonsense that it, it made people think, oh yeah, he was shot by accident in the chaos of, of violence and, you know, and in the chaos of war. And it's been, I think, five years since then. And Israel's military investigation has, has not given any answers. And I know that there was like a brief statement, um, that Murtaj's death was investigated by a military body. Uh, known as the fact-finding uh, assessment mechanism. Um, and then the military prosecutors determined that there was no suspicion of a crime being committed and they closed the case and no indictments were brought. So if, if that happened to him, I mean, yes, Shirin is an American citizen, but like, it still doesn't matter because ultimately whatever proof there is, is not gonna matter because at the end of the day, 
Israel is the prosecutor. It's the, you know, it's a judge. It's everything. And it's not going to do, it's not going to go against its own soldiers, obviously. Yeah, I, 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 I have observed often that even, even when Israel does offer some level of responsibility, or at least correcting the record, um, it's so far out of the news cycle um, that it becomes irrelevant. And the news cycle remains and we see this with alleged car rammings that turn out to not be that. We see this with alleged someone tried to grab a, the, the argument is they tried to grab a weapon and they were killed and then video emerges. And, you know, three weeks later, it's kind of, you know, off the, it's out of the news cycle, but it turns out there was actually video evidence that it isn't what they said it was. And yeah, judge, prosecutor, jury, all in, all in one. Um, all right. I want to circle back um, before we close, because I've I, you've given us a lot of your time today and I appreciate it. I want you to talk again to close about Shirin, the human being, your friend, Palestinian, a woman, beloved family member, as we've seen with the incredible efforts of her niece and other people um, for, for justice and to, 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 to maintain her legacy. Um, and of course, a brilliant journalist. Um, and, and as I think you started out, I mean, Shireen was an icon for Palestinians and, and really across the Arabic speaking word, world before she died. Can you talk about her legacy today um, and, and, and what it means and, you know, what it, what, what it, what you think it's going to mean in the future, or maybe, you know, what, what you hope it will mean in the future? I think, uh, I, I've been seeing a lot of videos basically of, of kids going up to um, the spot in Janine where she was killed and they, you know, they're being asked like, oh, why are you here? And they're like, we're here because of, you know, to see Shirin Abu Akhle and what, you know, th these kids can't remember anything. I mean, you know, um, I was 20 when Shirin was like, I believe maybe 30 or 30 something. And she was, you know, at the height of her career. So these kids know what they see, what they hear from the families, but still like, you know, it, it, it seems to be that her legacy is being passed down, you know, generation to generation, which I think is, is super important. And I, I just learned today that uh, Al Jazeera along with the Ramallah municipality is gonna open uh, what they're calling the Shirin Abu Akhle Museum uh, for Media or of Media. And I, I, I think that's brilliant. It breaks my heart that like we have to do something like that. But to me, it's so important that we keep talking about her no matter what, no matter what year. I, I don't care if it's 50 billion years from now. I want people to remember her because she was that special. She wasn't just special as a journalist, uh, uh, as a trailblazer, as somebody who inspired a generation of women and men. Um, she was also such a decent, beautiful human being. She, she was so down to earth. She was loving, she was caring. She took care of everybody who was around her. Um, there, was, there was no air of, of arrogance about her. You don't see that diva-ish um, style that you see for, you know, with many people on camera, um, even though she must have known like how important her work was and how, how well known she was, but the, the arrogance did not exist. There was none of it. And um, 
there were there were things about her that I appreciated and that I still take with me, like the way she was calm and collected under pressure, uh, the way, you know, she would run, but she wouldn't run frantic, frantically, you know, she, she, she just, she had uh, her, we have the saying in Arabic, like she had her brain in her head, which means that like she, she was very well grounded and, um, but she was also responsible and she was careful, you know, she was always careful to keep herself safe, to protect her team in dangerous situations. And she, you know, she didn't, want glory and she didn't want to be a martyr she didn't want to be somebody you know um on a on a poster um whenever i remember the video of her like ducking you know i i know that she was fighting for her life and she didn't want that life taken and the fact that she loved everything she loved life she loved going out and partying and music and all these things you know she she wasn't looking to be anything different. She loved what she did, but she also loved being an aunt. She was a great aunt. And I, I mean, I knew her family through her. Like I hadn't met them until after she was killed, sadly. Um, but uh, in her niece, for example, I found a piece of Shireen and that gives me solace. And it, it, it makes me, it makes me feel a bit better because there's, there's an element of her in Lena, for example. And I know that when I'm feeling down and when I'm feeling like I miss her so much that I can't breathe, like I'll write to her and I'll be like, I really miss Shireen. And she'll be like, I do too. But, but it's different when it's her niece because it's, it's a part of her and it's almost like I'm talking to her. Um, and I just feel like, honestly, at the end of the day, I want people to remember her for both, for, for being a journalist, but also for being a woman and um, just a kind person. And it, it's, it's, so, it's so hard to overstate uh, just how much Shireen meant to Palestinians and people throughout the Middle East and beyond and how much she meant to us as friends. Um, we will miss her. We miss her infectious laugh, her loving and playful nature, her, uh, the, the way she loved her, her um, pet dog, for example. And, and this is all aside from her inspiring work. Um, I mean, there's nothing that we can do to bring her back, but we can honor her life and legacy by always, always, always demanding justice and accountability. We need to get the soldier who, and the system that is behind the soldier, the system that killed her, we, they, we need justice from these people. And I know it's probably not gonna happen, um, but I wanna, I wanna try. I wanna try forever and I don't wanna put this to rest. I don't want shooting to become another number or you know another casualty that we forget about over time. I mean, all last week, I, I think there were like five or six people, Palestinians who were killed. And half the time we don't even know their names, you know? And, and that's the sad part is that Palestinian life can be so, um, so cheap and so unimportant and it, it just doesn't seem right. And I don't want for that for anybody but I especially don't want that for Shireen. Thank you so much for that. Thank you for that. Just, you know, we have all, all of us who didn't know Shireen personally have gotten to know her 
um, over the past year under the most tragic circumstances, obviously, but um, we've gotten the, the gift of some insight into this extraordinary person um, because friends and family like you have, have shared that with us. It's not just another news story. And that's, you know, as you say, this isn't just about shitting, it's about justice for all, all people. So, you know, all, all these deaths are not simply numbers. Um, but the, the, the ability of friends and family and colleagues of Shireen to, to, to in some ways force the world to reckon with a human being um, really, I think, breaks open space that didn't exist for insisting on um, the value of every human life, not children of a lesser God, not inconvenient deaths, but human beings. And I'm, I'm so grateful for you sharing your memories and your love of shooting with us. So thank you for that. Um, we're going to end this here. I know there's a lot of things this week around Shadeen's death. I, I, I hope people will, will take the time and, and take a breath and read and learn and, and allow themselves to step out of the news cycle itself and dig deeper because this is, these are the, the, the human beings behind the stories are the story. Um, and, and, and that's, that's what we can, that's what we can use if, if anything comes out of this moment that is that is a big piece of it um so dahlia we're going to stop here today so thank you so much for joining me and to our audience as always thank you for listening and watching um again i encourage folks to follow dahlia on twitter it's at dahlia hatuka and finally as always um i want to remind people to subscribe to the occupied thoughts podcast you can do that on itunes soundcloud and spotify we have great content um, pretty much every week, including this coming week with the the and the, the Nakba anniversary. There's so many um, horrible anniversaries here. Um, and you can find also this podcast and the video for it at www.fmep.org. Um, so with that, we're going to end it here. I'm Laura Friedman, president of the Foundation for Middle East Peace, thanking Dali Hatuka again for joining us and signing off until the next episode of Occupied Thoughts. <laughs>